0: Thank you, Shoko and Yannicka. Uh, that's a powerful, powerful hymn. And I've actually been listening to that. I came this close to singing that as a worship song this morning. Um, because I listened to it a few weeks ago. And it's the kind of hymn that repeats the same truth. He will hold me fast. And I found myself thinking that all week and and humming that tune. He will hold me fast. I thought our congregation needs to... Hear that and learn that hymn. And so they taught it to us this morning. Maybe we'll see it in the near future in our worship lineup. Well, good morning. It's good to see you in the house of the Lord this morning. And we are in the gospel of Matthew in chapter 20. And we will avail ourselves to God's holy word because God reveals himself to us in his word. So if you want to learn about your savior this morning and the kingdom That he is establishing on this earth. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Just as a quick recap, um, as I was sitting there thinking about the the message and what we have already learned and in Matthew, it's kind of ironic. And I, I really never noticed it till actually as I was thinking just a few seconds ago about this message that Jesus is not only in a mode where he's turned his attention to his disciples right now, he's in a, a discipleship mentoring mode because very soon he, is not, he will no longer be on this earth. And so he's preparing them and equipping them to lead. But in doing that, you'll notice that a lot of these teachings really clash with our human way of thinking. And we'll see that this morning. The principles of the kingdom often clash, I mean, head on with the fleshly, worldly way of thinking that makes sense to us. So we've already seen that Jesus often um, rejects those that the world holds in high esteem and then accepts those that the world has written off. And then in Matthew chapter 19, we also saw that Jesus rewards those ...who really haven't earned it or worked for it. Now, he rewards those fairly in the sense that if it's, if, if it's a deal that we've worked out... ...or terms that we've agreed to, but he also rewards those who didn't work the full amount. And that teaches us that the kingdom operates by grace and we are just... ...we're born with a works mindset, which often has us saying, God, you owe me. I worked for it. The kingdom operates by grace. We're going to look at another principle regarding greatness, power, glory, might. What does that look like in the world? How do you attain that? And then how does God define that? But before we get to that, Jesus all along as he's been teaching his disciples, he has been dropping hints the last several years about his impending death. And most of the time it goes over their heads or they pick up on an aspect of it that doesn't have to do with death. That's how our chapter, or at least our passage this morning, starts out. So let's read verses 17 through 19. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. I don't really want to intend to spend a lot of time in this passage, but I do want to point out two things because we haven't heard these before. There's two new um, details that Jesus is revealing about his death here. And we're going to be learning all about these over the coming months because it has everything to do with the Easter season that we're in right now. But one of the things that's new to us, he hasn't said yet, is that he will be condemned by the Jews. Well, you kind of see that coming with all the clashes he's had with the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. But then he says he will be put to death by the Gentiles. So it is the Gentiles who actually will end his life. And then the other details that are new is the way it's going to take place he'll he'll be brutally beaten he'll be flogged he'll be he'll be mocked made sport of and he will die by crucifixion and so he is informing the disciples with in great detail about what is to come and that will happen very soon chronologically speaking in the gospel as it unfolds But their minds are not so much busy trying to contemplate, well, what's it going to be like if Jesus dies? As his disciples, their minds are still busy thinking about what's it going to be like as this king establishes his kingdom here on earth. And I'm in pretty tight with him. I'm one of the chosen disciples. So what does that mean for me? So their minds are still concentrating on status and glory. We've already learned a little bit about what Jesus says about greatness, and we will continue to unfold this because we need to think about what does our status mean and our glory mean in light of the kingdom of heaven, as opposed to how we might think about it. Jesus contrasts the two. So here's what happens with the disciples. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was very evident in this passage that the disciples are still contemplating. What is this kingdom that Jesus is establishing going to look like and what does that mean to me? And um, so they realize he's powerful, he's authoritative, nobody can take him down. They're still in that kind of thinking mode, even though he's dropping hints that it's not going to look like what they think. They're struggling with this idea of greatness. Just a chapter before in Matthew 18, they were actually arguing about it so loudly that Jesus heard them. What are you guys up in arms about? They were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Then in chapter 19, Jesus, as he as we're learning, the kingdom is just kind of opposite of what the world says. You can't even get into the kingdom, more or less be great in it unless you come as a child, humble and meek and totally dependent on your heavenly father. And then he says, you will be rewarded, however, for those of you that have left things to follow me. You will be rewarded. As a matter of fact, you will sit on thrones and judge. And so, you know how some things kind of stick in our heads and other things don't. Well, that's stuck in their head. This idea of ruling, judging. So they're they're picturing what the earthly kingdom might look like. How can they better prepare themselves for it? You know, maybe they're in a sense jockeying for position the best way they can, humbly. Is there something I can be doing maybe? If there's going to be a position open with this new kingdom, is there a way I can kind of present myself to the master that would that would enable me to take that position? They're they're wrestling with this stuff, sorting through all of this. I this idea and positions of authority. Hey, if, if somebody's got to do it right, if Jesus is going to take over the world and he and somebody's going to reign with him, why not me? And if it's going to be me. Why not kind of have one of the upper positions so they're thinking in preparation way in advance what it might look like? Of course, we do this. It reminds me of, um, say, you get invited to a wedding and you're a female way in advance. You're thinking about what am I going to wear? You're preparing way in advance. You're laughing, but it's true. The guys are probably thinking, "Ooh, what are they going to serve for to eat this wedding? Got eight months, but. So you're thinking about, so let's look at this. The mothers of the sons of Zebedee, James and John. She comes in Matthew and she's on her knees. That's a pretty good way to ask for something, I'd say. I can't ever remember my kids actually getting on their knees unless it was just for fun. But in asking me for something. Now they did plenty of begging and whining. Please, please. So she comes and she gets on her knees. And what she's hoping for is a position, a great position for her sons, a great position of, of honor. If it's up for grabs, I'd love for my two boys to have it. Well, it turns out in Mark's account of this, the mother's not even mentioned in it. So the consensus is the sons really put her up to this. The disciples have been talking about it. Now, maybe she was on board. I don't know. But really, the sons are behind it. And the way that the other disciples respond indignantly kind of lets us into that clue. And, uh, you know, it's not that aspiring to be good at things. It's not that having a high position is wrong. Jesus doesn't say that ambition is wrong. In verse 26, he says, whoever would be mulled. Great among you. So, yeah, we are in a world where there are people that are in positions of authority. There are people that are over are over others. Ambition is good. Wanting to the rise to the top is, is good. Um, wanting to do your best or be the best at what you do. All these things are good and can be done in a God-honoring way. And we should be ambitious. The New Testament says, you know, you who seek or desire to be a deacon or a church leader, that's a good thing. But in order to do that, you've know, you got to work hard. you got to rise. you got to mature. you got to study and avail yourself. But that's all good. The, the difference is your motive. So it's not wrong to want to rule or be in charge. The difference is your motive. What's driving you? What is behind it? Because there's a big difference between being motivated by pride and humility. Being motivated. Motivated by really wanting just to serve myself and be in charge? Or am I doing this in humility as God is in charge through me? So it's the way you rule. We have this tension here that Jesus has been confronting the world with constant tension. The first will be last. Constantly challenged. Between the two kingdoms, because he's establishing the kingdom of heaven. And in order to establish the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of earth has to make way. The kingdom of earth has to go. So he's teaching us how that what that looks like. Coaching them. You know, there's principles. When you become a Christian, you you realize there's principles that the world has and you've been operating by them. Before you became a Christian and in a sense, in the world's way, they work. I mean, there's things that you can do to get ahead. It doesn't mean it's right, but there are just principles. And then there's principles of the kingdom. And there's times where some, you know, they can overlap or they're somewhat safe. But then there's other principles of life where they just totally clash. They cannot get along. One has to go. And this is one of those areas that has to go when it comes to pride when it comes to bigness of having a big head, uh, wanting everything to be about our own honor and our own glory, that just not even a little bit fits in to the principles of the kingdom. The kingdom is exactly opposite of that. Augustine said, writing in his book, The City of God, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly, by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly, by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. See the difference? Two totally different principles and motives. The former, in a word, glories in itself. The latter, glories in the Lord. Two different motives, two different goals, two different pleasures. And the Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament that much of the Christian life is taking off the old and putting on the new. It's it's relearning good habits in replace of the in place of the old habits, the bad habits, the worldly way, the fleshly way of thinking. John Calvin wrote for so blindly do we all rush in the direction of self-love that everyone thinks he has a good reason for exalting himself and despising all others in comparison. There's no other remedy than to pluck up by the roots those most noxious pests, self-love and love of victory. This the doctrine of Scripture does, for it teaches us to remember that the endowments which God has bestowed upon us are not our own, but his free gifts. And that those who plumb themselves upon them betray their ingratitude. It's a whole different mindset. So if I am better than somebody else, maybe that's because God enabled me, provided me with that skill, that gift or talent. It, it really is all about him and what he can do through me. Well, we, we like to take the credit. We like to take the credit for things that God has just gifted us. We didn't even do anything to earn it. Some of us have natural talents. You know, you're just better at most people at some things. And you were born that way. And we like to think, no, actually, I did this on my own. God gives us the ability. It's all in his dynamic plan of his sovereign rule, according to how he wants things to work. In this world and how he work, wants things to work in his kingdom. But no matter how great or what, how smart or how powerful we might be of a presence, it is all to be worked out in humility. So. Whether we uh, are great or small, so looking at ourselves too much. At the expense of God, mind you, clashes with the kingdom. Pride, self-pride, this idea of power, self-power clashes with the kingdom. And that's exactly what we have here. It's a self-love and pride that go together. It's all about me. I want to be noticed. I don't want to be taking orders. I want to be given orders. I want to be the one with my picture on the front cover, not somewhere in the back with a little teeny picture. It's all about self-glory being a big deal so that people will think much of me and that will just feed that pride that I have. And when we think along those lines, everybody else becomes the competition. Everybody else, you you have to go in order to make room for my ego. If I'm going to be on top, only one of us can be in the front, right? In the limelight. So I have to figure out ways to stomp the competition and much of what we see in our world, especially in the business world and the political world and places where power reigns is this exact mindset, even with our government, even within our law enforcement. I've probably been watching too many law enforcement shows lately, but I can't help but to notice how all the different compartments clash with one another. To the point where they don't even cooperate with one another. Now, maybe it's just on TV, but I doubt it. I think it's in real life. All these egos, they want to be the one to get the arrest. They want to be the one to take the person down. It just feeds it competitively. You know, soon we're going to be contemplating the passion of Christ. The cross and the death and the suffering. We're going to be reminded of the the agony. What did Jesus suffer And he comes before Pilate. And it's an amazing scene because Pilate's Pilate's like, I don't get this. He looks at Jesus. I don't get this. You're a king? Where's your kingdom? Where's your army? Where are all your servants bowing at your feet, doing everything that you tell them to do? Where's the greatness? Where's the glitz? Where's the glamour? Like, this isn't how worldly kingdoms work. Of course, Jesus says, well, my kingdom actually is of another world, it's of heaven. But there's this expectation of how things should look according to our flesh. And it does not fit the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus asked, according to this request. Notice he he often poses questions. Rather than just saying, no, you cannot or yes, you can. He says, are you willing to drink my cup? You don't know what you're asking, he says in verse 22. They said, well, yeah, we're able. Well, what is the cup? The cup is the cup of suffering. And Jesus was in the garden. He said, let this cup pass from me if it be thy will. It's a cup that, of suffering that comes with the kingdom of God. It's a result of us surrendering ourselves to the will of God, which many times takes us down paths of suffering. And we talked a lot about suffering this morning. And there's another thing. Talk about worldly thinking and kingdom thinking. The worldly thinking says, oh, there's nothing good at all about suffering. We need to do everything we can to escape suffering. And then God comes along, the kingdom of God says, actually, no, it plays a very important part in your spiritual formation. And there are times where you should embrace suffering. It's a can be a wonderful thing. It has an important place. The constant tension in the way we think and the way God thinks. He said, let this cup pass. Of course, he did the will of his father. But Jesus is kind of warning these guys. He's training these guys. You know, if you're, if you're really thinking about, if you're really wanting to be great... There are places of greatness in the kingdom of God, but they come through suffering. Great, great suffering. Before the throne comes the cross. And they each have a cup. It looks different, just like our cup looks different. We all have our own story before God, but we have a cup that we need to bear. I like the way that the mother at least petitions the Lord. You think about you have something you want to come before him with. I like that it's not a demand or a command like we're often taught to pray these days. But it's thy kingdom come, thy will be done, if it's your will. It's a petition you're asking God with the understanding that he knows what's best. And if it's something that I I should have, he will give it to me. And if it's something that I don't need, he will not give it to me because this kingdom is all about him. So even just that humble way of asking shows a submission of heart, even though there's pride involved in the sons. And it also makes me think when we pray. Do we always know what we're really asking for? How many times have we prayed for something and we didn't get it? We're so angry at God because we're convinced this is exactly what I need in my life. Get on board. And yet, isn't it possible that we didn't get that thing that we were convinced that we needed because it would have actually not been the blessing that we thought it would have been our doom? We don't always know what we're asking for. We, we're not God. We can't foresee the future. And so if we actually get the things we want, what effect will that have on us down the road? You know, is that is that big house or that property that I've been longing for and praying for? Is that what's going to bring me the blessing in my life? Or is that going to be my doom or that position or that job that I've always waited for? Is that going to be the blessing? I think it is because we we have our own way of predicting the future, how it's going to work out to our favor. And sometimes that's not reality. I thank God that we don't always know what we're asking. We pray, we pray our, the best we can according to Scripture. But that's another reason where I'm so glad that God's a sovereign God. He doesn't just answer whimsically like, well, I don't know either. Let's find out here. But he has a definitive plan. We're limited in our scope of knowledge, We petition, we ask, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He has, he's not a God just to meet our needs. We are here for him. So can you drink the cup that is reserved for you? You know, all those disciples, as far as we know, historically, documentation uh, leads us to this. They all died a martyr's death. John, except for John, he, they tried to kill him. I think they baked him and in, in, um, boiled him in oil. And he lived through it. Then they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. Man, you talk about a cup. Those disciples suffered. And then he asks them, not only are you willing to drink the cup, but if you're going to think about greatness and leadership, are you willing to serve? How many people attaining to, to uh, rise through the ranks are looking at it with this perspective of, if I could just get up there, I could serve more people. It's usually, if I could just get up there, I could boss more people. Be in charge, of the less people could hassle me. I get to tell them what to do when they can take a lunch break, if they get one. Jesus called them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles do what? Lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You know the way of the Gentile. We see it every day in our culture. Power hungry. Taking every opportunity To lord over others. They use the power, the gifts, the talents, whatever that God has given them. And they use it to sit on the throne of their lives. And that's how it works. And then you use what power you have to crush the the opposition. That's how it works. And, And how pitiful it is in our day to see how much people love fame. How much people love positions of power. And when you get it, next thing you know, you have all these friends that you didn't have. Why? Because they want it. They want something to do with that power. They want something to do with that position. So you have all these little people that are willing to do whatever. Sure, I'll do that. I'll be your little servant. But what I really want is to take your place. I really want, I'm using you to work my way up the ranks like you use me. And that's that endless cycle of the desires of the world. You ride on their fame. Get bossed around. They lord it. Then Jesus comes. He turns it all, say, right side up. And he says, greatness is not that you're so much better than everybody else. Greatness is that you serve. You serve everyone else. Now, what does that do to your thinking? Like it's kind of we, we wait our whole lives sometimes to get in this position where we can get some glory and be the boss. And then Jesus says, actually, if you have that position, it's so you can serve well and not serve yourself, but serve others. The word serve here in verse 26 is the same word we use for deacons. And we know that deacons are servants. That word was you. It's just it's just a common labor is all it is. That word now. Now. As the apostle used it and the New Testament writers used it more and more, it became more of a churchy word. But in the Gospels, it wasn't a churchy word yet. It was just a common word for you're a common servant. That you would find anywhere in that society. And then the next word he uses is is doulos. It's the word slave. It's an indentured slave. It's somebody who is completely dependent on somebody else for their their livelihood and their well-being and their clothes and their food. In verse 27, Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You see how Jesus is picking apart the ways of the world and the way that we think about power and honor. They use their God-given powers and their craftsmanship and everything that God has given them, and they use it to serve, to bless others, to lift others up. At perhaps even the expense of their own. They care for them. They give themselves. Promote others rather than self. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? I don't know. Is there a, is there a day that goes by where we have not in some way provo- promoted ourselves? In our thinking. And I know it's so hard to think along these Terms when we are literally in immersed in a culture that thinks exactly opposite and actually trains us exactly opposite. Trains us how to think about ourselves and our place in this world and how to think about other people. We are immersed in a self-promoting culture. And again, that's the principle of the world. It's just what you do to get ahead. You lie about yourself. You make yourself look a whole lot bigger and better than what you really are. And it kind of works. In our culture, it's like expected when you're reading resumes and things. And we're all about feeling good about ourselves, getting liked on Facebook, screaming about our own rights and what we deserve in this world. All the a lot of the divisiveness that we see on television these days in our in our political and our cultural life, it has to do with just really loving ourselves and being persistent and consistently demanding that I get my way for crying out loud because I am important. And my rights really should trump your rights. It's more important for me to feel good than for you to feel good. So make way. And these days we have to be proud about everything. Have you noticed it? You can't just like be yourself or join this or join that. You have to be proud about it. You have you have pride this and pride that everything is about pride and that's that was the roman culture by the way very it was built on pride and humility was considered an absolute weakness like you don't get anywhere with a humble attitude you fight your way to the top same thing that we see in our culture you know a large part of what's happening Today, by the way, no culture can really thrive, more or less survive when the motive is self glorying or pride. Why? Because the fact of the matter is, in order to to thrive, to get anywhere, we have to know how to get along with one another. We have to know how to work with one another. And when you're in departments that are all self-seeking, nobody can trust anybody. Everybody knows that they're just looking for a way to catch some dirt on you. It makes, it, it, it just, progress cannot be had. And this is exactly what we see in our culture everybody turning against the other person. How can you get anywhere with that kind of attitude? You can't. Pride and arrogance is what is a killer. It happens in our family life, it happens in our relationships. If we're all just looking out for our own interest, you know, we have to be a team. We have to trust each other, and legitimately care for one another. Or why would I want to do anything for you if I know that around the next corner, all you're going to do is cut my throat? And that's the culture we live in. And it's exactly opposite of what Jesus is teaching. That culture falls apart. Jesus is, is knitted together. It's that unity. It's that oneness of mind. And community mindset. Sadly, this same attitude finds its way into the church. Pride, arrogance, self-focus, do everything for myself. Finds its way into the church, but it doesn't take quite that uh, the, the attitude of being really out there. It's a little more subtle. But a lot of the bestsellers in Christian books these days, is all about self-promotion. Feeling good about yourself, your self-image, you'd think if you the world says if you just get the right self-image, all your problems are, are solved. All this self-love stuff it works its way right on into our church and being taught to, to how how to feel better about ourselves, think highly of ourselves, boost ourselves. We deserve all these kind of things. We deserve to be more attractive. We deserve to be healthy. We deserve to be rich. And that's what we're fed. We think if we just believe this, it will come to pass. And that's because the church will even say that's what God wants for you, by the way. To be rich, to be beautiful, to be perfectly healthy, to not suffer at all, not even have a gas pain after you eat Mexican on Sunday. None of that stuff. It's, It's of the devil. God is only about primping you. Fluffing up your pillow, fluffing up your life. It sounds pretty silly, but. That's what we're hearing. Not quite in those terms because that's not subtle. But that's what we're hearing. Let me just say that I'm not aware in church history of ever a church revival that happened. Because Christians finally got the right self-image. Never. Now, what I do read is that people who call themselves Christians fell on their face because they realized that. How unworthy they were before a holy God. And they saw how many times they fell short of his glory. And it is in that weakness, that weak moment in the church when it just accumulated so much power. And made so much progress for the kingdom of God. It wasn't when they were thinking so highly of themselves. It was when they were thinking how low, so lowly of themselves because they realized how awesome God was. And they realize, I'm just a vessel. That's all I am. I'm an unworthy vessel. To do anything for him is an honor. That's when revival comes. Micah 6.8. What does the Lord desire of thee? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Walk humbly. Everyone who is proud in heart, Proverbs 21.4, is an abomination to the Lord. Don't fall for the lives to be consumed by with yourself. It is a pit that you're digging that you will get stuck in and never be satisfied. It does not deliver no matter how inspirational the speaker is. Lies can are not real. John Piper wrote, commenting on, a, on the current self-love that we see today. Today, the first and greatest commandment is thou shalt love thyself. And the explanation, the explanation for almost every interpersonal problem is thought to lie in someone's low self-esteem. Sermons, articles, books have pushed this idea into the Christian mind. It is a rare congregation, for example, that does not stumble over the theology of Isaac Watts, who wrote in that great hymn. Alas, and did my savior bleed. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Someone else has well written that there's a new cross in evangelicalism today. He says the old cross slew men. The new cross entertains them. The old cross condemned. The new cross assures. The old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh. The new cross encourages it. The old cross brought tears and blood. The new cross brings laughter. The flesh, smiling and confident, preaches and sings about the cross before that cross. It bows toward that cross it, before that cross. It bows and toward that cross. It points with carefully staged historionics. But upon that cross, it will not die. And the reproach of that cross, it stubbornly refuses to bear. And you got scripture crying out, die to self. Die to self, be set free. That's how you're set free And the world is saying, oh, no, 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 no. You need to love yourself more and more and more and more. And the problem is you don't love yourself enough. We're taught this as infants. The universe is about me. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. God's revelation to us this morning. It shall not be so among you. You don't have to be first. You don't have to be great. According to the world's eyes. You don't need all that stuff. It's empty. It's vain. What do you need? Servanthood. Even as a son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for any. Now, Jesus washed feet. And, you know, when he washed those feet, he did not wash his greatness away. He did not lose a single ounce of majesty when he washed the disciples feet. He stayed the same. In fact, it's that kind of service that makes him greater than any other being. And that servant came to save that which is lost and to give his life as a ransom for any many. I'll pay the price. I'll do. I'll take it. They deserve it. I'll take it so that they can be lifted up into a relationship with the heavenly Father. See, that's kingdom greatness. The emptying of the self. It doesn't do a lot for our ego, but it does a lot for the kingdom. Self-abandonment. That's the kind of honor that Christians should be looking for. And then just quickly close with this passage. It doesn't seem to fit, but it will fit. Because right after that, we have blind men crying for the mercy of God. Verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried all the more, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want from me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open." And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is a real physical healing, but there's so many spiritual implications to what just took place here. This is us without Christ. Beggars, blind, stuck in darkness. We can't help ourselves try as we may. We're desperate. And the difference between not seeing and seeing that stands between you is the mercy of God. And that's it. So what do they do? They cry out for it. And that's what humble believers do. They're constantly crying out for the mercies of God. Not me, but you. I must decrease. You must increase. Have mercy on my soul, O Lord. And that's when the glory of God becomes the most manifest in our lives. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.